When Jesus returns to the earth at the second coming, the scriptures teach that the multitude of his saints will come with him. Turning our attention today to Revelation 19 verses 12 through 14, Pastor Phil will describe this event and who these saints that return with Christ will be. Let's listen. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And the idea is the, the, the blood splattered up to the horses' bridles. It speaks of Jesus Christ coming in judgment to destroy the armies of the Antichrist, those that have opposed him. Notice that no one helps him. He is able to bring judgment all by himself. But back to Revelation 19, verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, this is a very common, familiar title for Jesus Christ. We see it in John's Gospel, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All th- you know, he, uh, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was nothing made that was made, right? Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this is a familiar title of Jesus Christ, that He is the Word. And there's a couple of reasons why He is called the Word. First of all, He is called the Word in the sense that He became the full revelation of God to mankind. All the way through the Old Testament, you had God revealing Himself and little bits and pieces of information, right? Through prophets, through visions and dreams and so on. All the way through, we have little bits and pieces of God revealing Himself, but finally Jesus stood in the earth and became the full disclosure of God's glory. Uh, He became the full revelation of God through the Incarnation. In Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1, the writer says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, the Jewish fathers, by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. That's the second way his, he is the word of God, because the word of God is power. By the word of God, God brought all things into existence. Jesus Christ is that word. He spoke the world into existence. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory of God, the Trinity, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he, had, uh, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and so on. So the idea here is that when Jesus is called the word of God, it signifies the fact that he became the full revelation of God's person. Uh, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father will be satisfied. Jesus said, Philip, how long have I been with you that you asked me such a question? If you've seen, the, seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? Look at Jesus. Look how He handled sinners. Look how He loved people. You want to know what God the Father is like? 
Look at Jesus Christ. And he is also the word in the sense of power. And so verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now if you ask a person, who is this army? They will say it's the church coming back with the Lord from heaven to establish his kingdom. I agree with that. I don't think it goes far enough. It's plural. The armies of heaven. I think there's four troops to this, these armies, four divisions that make up this glorif- these glorified troops. First, of course, you have the bride. I mean, we're, it's seen here. They, they are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, we saw earlier in chapter 19 that uh, the bride of the Lamb of the church was pictured wearing fine linen, white and clean, verses 7 and 8. Of course, she, the church, is going to be returning with the Lord at His coming. Paul said in Colossians 3, verse 4, And when Jesus, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory, right? Talking to the church. So the church is obvious, that we know the church is coming with the Lord. Secondly, though, I believe the tribulation believers who died for their faith, they're going to be returning because in chapter 7, verse 9, we see them in heaven dressed in white robes, clean and bright, which is the righteousness of the saints. So they're coming back too, I believe, with the Lord. Also you have, I believe, a third group, which is the Old Testament saints, who are going to be resurrected by the Lord at His coming. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tell us. And finally, a fourth group is going to be the angels of heaven, because Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 31, that they also will accompany Him at His appearing. So four groups, okay? You have the church, you have tribulation saints, you have Old Testament saints, and you have the angels of God, all seen riding white horses. And people say, well, this proves there's animals in heaven. Right here, this proves it. I I don't think these are literal horses. I don't think that God glorifies animals that die. Um, That's my opinion. doesn't mean he can't create a special group of, of supernatural creatures that we ride, you know, or, you know, the Bible says that, you know, we're coming in the clouds and maybe God allows the clouds to look like horses, you know, as we're coming back to the earth. Who knows? It's, it's symbol, symbolism, imagery, right? But um, again, I want you to notice that all of this army, these armies, nobody is armed. There's only one person that carries a weapon and that's the Lord Jesus Christ because he alone is going to execute vengeance upon these rebels. In Jude, verses 14 and 15, Jude says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an, in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. I mean, it sounds like he's just watched the evening news, right? I mean, when, when, when I watch the news, I just that's the word that comes to my mind over and over. Ungodliness. All the ungodly things that people do and say and so on. And Jude says, you know, the Lord is coming. And he's coming to execute judgment on all those who refuse to repent of their ungodliness. Well, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, 
and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you didn't know who this person was, now you know. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that he has coming out of his mouth a sharp sword with which he's going to use it to strike the nations. Artists have tried to um, paint this picture, and it's kind of grotesque. You see Jesus with this large sword sticking out of his mouth. Well, first of all, the word sword here is the Greek word rumphia, uh, and it's used of a, of a long, heavy, two-sided broadsword, which has only one purpose, and that's to kill. I mean, to sever limbs, crush heads, de decapitate heads from bodies. I mean, the Romans did carry a smaller sword, like a dagger. They would use that sometimes to cut meat and, and, and do some other things as a utility tool, okay? But this long, heavy, two-sided broadsword, uh, that was used with two hands, and you just swung it, and the idea was that you want to just nail somebody. Anywhere you nailed them, you did damage. And, of course, to hit them in a vital spot like the head, archaeologists have uncovered more than one skull where the skull was completely uh, cut in two uh, because somebody got nailed with one of these broadswords. The purpose, though, is to kill. And, of course, this is not a literal sword that proceeds out of Jesus' mouth. It's symbolic for the Word of God. Think about this. The same word that Jesus used to create the universe. Remember, it says he created all things by the word of his power. The same word he also uses to hold it all together. That same word of his power he is going to use to destroy his enemies. When he comes to the earth, he is going to fight against these people that have gathered to go to war against him at the Battle of Armageddon. Of course, there will be people on the earth who will be believers. They will be spared, of course, and allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. But those people that have gathered for this battle, they're going to be slaughtered instantaneously. There's not going to be a battle. I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. They're gathered, they've gathered there in the Valley of Megiddo with tanks and, and, and rocket launchers and, and maybe nukes or whatever it might be, and they're going to fight against the Lord. But there is no fight. He just speaks the word, and they blow up. You know, they just pop, you know? Like one of those mosquitoes that bites you and you pinch your skin, you know. And have you ever done that? Pinch your skin so the thing can't get its little thing out, and it, you know, it's, it's a little stinger out of there or whatever. You, and he's, you're just pumping the blood into him, funnel, he just pops, you know. It's, yeah, I know it's gross. Little boys like to do that, I, you know. But it's a guy thing. But, I mean, the Lord is just going to say the word, and they're going to just blow up. Blood everywhere, Right? But there will be others who are alive on the earth that don't gather for this battle that are also unbelievers, also have been defined against the Lord. Matthew 25 says that he's going to gather them all together, all the remaining people, believers and unbelievers. He's going to separate them, you know, separate the nations like you would separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep are going to be believers and they're going to be allowed to come into the millennial kingdom. The rest who are unbelievers, they're going to be killed as well and cast into Hades. And so it talks about the sword, but it also talks about the iron scepter that he is going to rule with once he establishes his kingdom. Uh, he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so the idea is, when Jesus comes back to the earth, he is going to be an absolute ruler. He's going to be, it's going to be a, 
a benevolent dictatorship. And that's going to be great. There's nothing wrong with an absolute monarch run a ruling if that absolute monarch is absolutely good. The problem is when you get an absolute monarch that's a despot. That's a problem. I mean, the best form of government is a monarchy, if you have the right king on the throne, which we're going to have, right? And he is not going to tolerate sin or injustice or rebellion. This imagery is very graphic. I mean, you know, a potter, if he um, made a pot and fired it up, and then after it was all done, he noticed there was an imperfection in it, couldn't really use it for anything, couldn't sell it. So he would just take, you know, the rod and pop it. It would just shatter. He'd throw it out into the potter's field. And that's the imagery here. Jesus Christ is not going to tolerate injustice. He's not going to tolerate any kind of evil. Those people who have entered into the millennial kingdom with their physical bodies, who marry and have children and their children grow up and have children, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be alive on the earth during the millennial kingdom. And they have to obey the Lord. There's no two ways around it because... If they don't, and I don't know if he's going to pop somebody for just telling a, a lie. He, I'm sure there's going to be some grace. But he definitely won't tolerate anything near what we see today going on. He's going to really rule with a rod of iron. And that's why it's going to be a kingdom of peace. That's why you're going to be able to walk the streets at night and leave your doors unlocked. Because Jesus is ruling. He's not going to tolerate any kind of evil or injustice. Verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, or maybe literally in the sun, or maybe just standing in front of the sun. doesn't really matter, I guess. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Well, again, I mean, the Antichrist gathers his armies together to go against, to, to fight against the Lord, but none of their weapons have any effect. In fact, they, they don't even get to fight, okay? Uh, the Lord turns it into a slaughter, but it's called a supper for vultures and other scavenger-type birds. It's interesting, in the first half of Revelation 19, we saw another kind of supper, didn't we? The marriage supper of the Lamb. The last half, we see what's called the supper of the great God, which really is uh, a feast that the birds have on the carcasses of those that die in this battle. It's interesting that the word flesh is used five times in verse 18. And of course, we know what John was really communicating primarily, which was, the flesh signifies, of course, the physical bodies which are going to be eaten by these birds. But I have to believe the Holy Spirit meant some of it to, you know, to, to have a spiritual application too. I mean, sinful, rebellious man loves his flesh, lives for his flesh, feeds his flesh, worships his flesh, and puts his trust in his flesh, and now God destroys his flesh. I think that's the deeper lesson that the Holy Spirit, you know, Peter says, all flesh is, is gra like grass. It's here today, it withers tomorrow, it's gone. This life is so short. It's transitory. It's so foolish for people to put all their, <laughs> put everything in this life when it's going to be over so soon. I mean, the flesh is everything to people. But we know the flesh profits nothing for a child of God. We, we know that we're to crucify our flesh, our fallen nature. And we're to live for the spirit, you know, walk in the spirit and so on. 
Uh, just very quickly, if you compare the language here to the Battle of Ezekiel 39, verses 17 through 20, uh, the language is very similar. But I don't think they are the same battle. There are a lot of people that say, well, in Ezekiel 37, 39, you really have the same battle spoken of as you do here in Revelation 19. Well, they are similar in the sense that they both end with the birds eating the flesh of all these dead carcasses. But be careful because just because something sounds similar in Scripture doesn't mean it's automatically the same thing. You've got to be careful with that. Anytime God judges an army, there's going to be a lot of dead bodies which the birds are going to feed on. That's just the way it is. That just speaks of God's judgment upon that group. In Ezekiel 39, you have the armies of the north coming down to invade Israel. But here you have God contending with the armies of the entire world. So it's, it's, that may be a foreshadowing in chapter 39 of Ezekiel of this final ultimate battle. But I don't think they're the same. I think that that battle in Ezekiel takes place before the tribulation begins. This one, the final battle to end all battles, takes place at the end of the tribulation period. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And folks, once again, this to me has got to be one of the most unbelievable verses in the Bible. How deceived mankind becomes at this point where they actually think they can go to war against God and win. I mean, the Antichrist has really done a number. And, and people have welcomed it. Nobody gets deceived who doesn't want to be deceived. I mean, if a person loves the truth and wants to know the truth, God will give them the truth and they won't be deceived. 2 Thessalonians 2, because they would not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, then God sent them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And he's talking about the Antichrist coming and deceiving people. And at one point, you know, he's able, because he's able to work miracles and do all these incredible things, and then somebody tries to kill him, and it looks like for three days he's dead, and then suddenly he comes back to life, which I don't think was a real resurrection at all. It was a, a pseudo-resurrection, a fake one. But the devil's good at counterfeiting, Right? So he makes it look like it's a real, the real thing. Well, at this point, the admiration of the world moves to a whole new level of worship now. And they begin to say the whole world follows the Antichrist. Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Man, this guys he's God. He's invincible. And he gets them to believe this so much that they're willing to follow him into battle against the true and living God, thinking that their man is stronger than God. It just boggles my mind. Again, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain or a stupid thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against Jesus, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. He's going to mock them what it's saying. God sits up in heaven and he laughs. you got to be kidding me. You really think you're going to go? And of course there is no battle. We call it the battle of Armageddon. It really isn't the battle at all. The Lord comes back, says the word, everyone blows up, and the birds come and just have a big feast. That's about it. Alright, verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who works signs in his presence 
by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So the Lord comes back and he takes, now you can imagine how demoralizing this would be to an army. An army that's put all their hope and trust in these two characters, the Antichrist and the false prophet. The Lord comes back and just plucks them right off the earth. Just bodily throws them into the outer darkness. Wherever the lake of fire is, Jesus says, in the outer darkness. He tosses them alive into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, folks, is hell. It's hell. And by comparing this with other scriptures, we realize that the beast and the false prophet are the first to inhabit the lake of fire. Now, there are those that believe in what's called annihilationism. What is that? Well, it's the belief that says that unbelievers are cast by the Lord into the lake of fire, but as soon as they hit the lake of fire, they burn up and go out of existence. So there is no eternal torment. There's no eternal suffering. And as I've said before, you know, I, I would love to teach that if it was true. But it isn't true. Chapter 14, we read, The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and took the number of his name. And we learn in chapter 20, verse 10, that after the thousand-year millennial kingdom is over, and people stand before the great white throne judgment, which we'll study in more detail next time. And they are cast into the lake of fire. It says that as they're cast into the lake of fire along with the devil, the false prophet and antichrist are still there suffering. So they haven't gone out of existence. They're still being tormented even after a thousand years and, in fact, will go on to be tormented forever and ever. But I just want to end by saying this. The same inspired Word of God that talks about the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, which sent His Son to die for us that we, so that we could go to heaven. The same inspired Word of God that talks about His grace, His goodness, eternal life that He's offering freely through Jesus Christ, the same inspired Word talks about divine wrath and judgment and eternal torment for those who refuse to accept Christ. And the liberal theologians like to focus on all the scriptures that talk about God's love and grace and mercy and kindness and goodness, and they purposely do not talk about the scriptures that talk about his wrath and his judgment and his righteousness that has to punish sin. But that's not honest. You cannot divide God from who he is. He is merciful, he is gracious, he is long-suffering, he is kind, he is forgiving, he is all of that, but he's also holy and righteous and just, and he has to punish sin. And if a person doesn't receive Christ, whereby the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son on Calvary, then you're going to have to stand before God, and you're going to have to bear your own punishment, which is going to take for eternity to repay. And so... The Bible is clear that judgment awaits the wicked. And at the second coming of Christ, that is going to be the occasion where God is going to unleash a worldwide judgment unparalleled since the days of Noah. And today, so many churches are not teaching this. It makes people uncomfortable. 
you know, if you want to build a big church and make sure you don't upset people, you better keep things kind of positive. After all, we've got a beautiful new building we've got to pay for. I need all the folks that tithe here. I can't afford to offend anybody. And so they water things down, keep it very positive. They don't talk about judgment. They don't talk about hell. They don't talk about these things. That the, you know, Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven or even more than he talked about love because he didn't want anyone to go there. So may God help us to speak the truth in love but to not water things down. We need to tell people that God loves them and they need to flee the wrath to come by giving their hearts to Christ. Once they take refuge in him, he will protect them. Just like Noah and his family were sealed safely in the ark, protected from God's judgment, those of us who have received Christ are sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ, and the judgment of God will never touch us. We have passed from death to life. We will never come into condemnation. Amen. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.